theyeshiva.net. Parsha Shmois, Va'era Boy Beshalach, the parshas of these weeks, begin to describe a new chapter in Jewish history. At this point, the Jewish people have relocated to Egypt. The sons of Yisrael, the children of Yisrael, the family of Yaakov, has relocated from the land of Canaan to the land of Egypt. They have settled in Goshen. Parai is taking good care of them. He has allowed the Prime Minister Yosef to settle his family in comfort, in peace, in prosperity. They have begun to proliferate and blossom and grow. A small, relatively small tribe and family is now becoming larger and greater. And we all know the continuation of the narrative in Parashat Shemais, where Parai becomes terrified of the Jewish people and begins to oppress them, subjugate them into slavery. And thus begins the long, tragic, painful saga of Golis Mitzrayim, the Egyptian exile, which continues to be described in Parashat Shemais, Parashat Zva'era, and the first part of Parashat Bai until the exodus of Egypt. At the end, there is, there is a moment, a great moment at the end of Parsha Shemais, where Moshe Rabbeinu, who was sent by God to liberate the slaves, to emancipate his kin, to emancipate the Jewish people, and he comes to Parai, and he asks of Parai to let my people go, let them leave and worship me in the name of God. And Parai, what does Parai do? Pare says, you guys are lazy. And because you're lazy, therefore you have time to think about freedom, and therefore he increases the slave labor on the Jewish people. To the point that some Jews are deeply upset at Moshe and Aaron, because they say, you have made it worse. Now Pare is going to murder us all, at least before we survived somehow. Now it's over. And that's when Moshe returns to Hashem. And he is frank and in pain. And he tells Hashem, why are you doing this? Why have you afflicted your nation? You have not saved them. And when I came to Parai, from when I came to Parai, not only did the thing, I came to Parai on your behalf, as your messenger of redemption, not only did things not become better, they became worse, much worse. That's Moshe's complaint, Moshe's lament, Moshe's outcry to the Rebbeinu Shalom, to Hashem. Why did you do this? What is Hashem's response at the end of Shmois? He says, Now you're going to see. Things will be good. Now you're going to see that with a strong arm, he will expel the Jewish people from his land. But that's not the end of the conversation. The conversation continues in the next parsha, and that's where the Maimah begins. Hashem speaks to Moshe, and this is always, this is good to point out, because people read Chumash and they don't notice this. The structure of how something is written is very important. Very often, there's a conversation that started, and in the middle, the Torah goes back and starts the conversation over again as though it's a new conversation. Like this is a classic case. Moshe is complaining about the Egyptian exile. It says, Hashem responds and says, now you're going to see things will be all right. They're going to be liberated. Pater will expel them. And then you would expect him to continue the conversation. No. In the middle of the conversation, the Torah says, They were talking already. You don't say Yankel is talking to Chaim and Yankel tells Chaim, good morning, how are you? You want to go into business with me? And Yankel tells Chaim, and also I have another offer for you. They're in the middle of a conversation. This happens in the Torah and not infrequently. And whenever it happens, you have to take note. Because the conversation was already on a roll. Why are we starting over again? But that's how Parshas Vera begins. In the middle of a conversation, the opening of the, of, the, of the portion. 
Elohim speaks to Moshe and says to him, I am God. Again, a very strange verse. Elohim tells Moshe, by the way, you know who I am? Ani Hashem. But he changes his name. <laughs> Elohim speaks to Moshe and says, I'm Hashem. And then he continues. A third name is introduced. I appear to Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov with the name of Shindalad Yud. I never allowed them to know, to experience the name Yudke Vavke. So three names come here together. Elohim speaks to Moshe and he says, I am Hashem. I appear to Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov by the name of Shindalad Yud, but not with the name of Hashem. And then he goes on to say, and I have made a covenant with them that I'm going to give them the land of Canaan, and therefore go tell the Jewish people that I remember the covenant, and I will take them out of Egypt, I will save them, I will liberate them, I will make them my nation, I will bring them to Eretz Yisrael. Of course, the end of that story is Moshe speaks to the Jewish people, but they can't hear, they can't listen. The slave labor is so burdensome, it's so oppressive, they are short of breath, they are terrorized and oppressed by the horrific work, they can't even hear Moshe. They can't even listen to Moshe. Says the Balatanya, This parsha of Eide is a response to what happens at the end of Shmois. Moshe comes back to Hashem after Pari increases the torture and the workload. And he tells Hashem, why have you afflicted these people? So Hashem says, I appear to Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov with the name of Shindalad Yud. What type of answer is this? What type of response is this? On Moshe's question, so why do you afflict the Jewish people? Rashi explains, all the Mepharshim struggle with this, because when you're reading the story, it's difficult to understand the cohesive theme. Moshe asks a question. So Hashem says, now you're going to see. You still didn't answer the question. I asked you, why did you do this? And why did it become worse? He says, now you're going to see. Okay. But the point is, it's going to be good. Now starts a new parsha, And now it's the whole thing that I appeared to Avram Yitzhak and Yaakov, but they never saw Yudke Vavke, and now I'm going to do it. First of all, you already said that at the end of at the end of Shmois. But also, how are you answering his question? He asked a question. Unless you don't want to answer his question. But it looks like you're giving a long answer to his question. How are you answering it? Why did you afflict these people? Why, 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 do they, why do they deserve this? Or they don't deserve it. Apparently they don't deserve it. Why are you doing this? Which brings us to another question, which is, of course, a continuation of the first question. What did they do? What was, was this a punishment for something? Was this a penalty for something? What exactly was the sin that caused the exile with mortar and bricks? And he's asking two questions within this question. First of all, what did they do wrong? Why did they deserve this? And why did it translate into this type of workload? Mortar and bricks. Furthermore, and we see that it was already decreed during the covenant that Hashem made with Avram Avinu hundreds of years earlier in Parshas Lech Lecha. He tells Avram Avinu that your children, your descendants, will become foreigners, they will become refugees in a land that is not theirs. They will be oppressed. He gives a number there, 400 years. Then they will leave with great assets, with great wealth. I will judge the nation that will oppress them. And Why? Now, this is a... a, a this is a, a profound question. And those of you who remember the Maime that we learned of Reb Hillel, Reb Hillel Paritcher was a Talmud of the Balatanya, the Mitzvah of the Tzemach Tzedek. It was, uh, it was in the summertime, the three weeks, Tisha B'Av time, 
We learned it not last year, but two years ago. It's on the yeshiva.net. It's a long, long mimer, you remember? He elaborates a lot. Some of the parts of that mimer are based on this mimer of, his, of the Balatanya. And there he elaborates on this question based on the Medrash, based on the Medrash Rabbah. This is a very profound question because as the Medrash says, Moshe read through the whole Sefer Bereshis. When it says he read through the whole Sefer he was aware of the themes of Sefer Bereshis. And over there, there's a very clear correlation between actions and reactions. Between actions and consequences. You know, like the pedagogues always say, that actions, you have to explain to your children, actions have consequences and they should see the connection. Not random punishment, impulsively or angrily, or with anger. So throughout Bereshis, Cain kills Hevel, there's consequences. Adam and Chava eat from the tree of knowledge, there are consequences. There is raging corruption in the times of Noyach, there are consequences. Chum speaks of his husband of his father's nakedness, there are consequences. And so go, you go through the whole story. Avram leaves Charon and there are consequences. Every action creates a result in the positive or in the negative. Yishmal mocks Yitzchak and there are consequences. Yaakov takes Esav's blessings, there are consequences. Leah marries Yaakov instead of Rachel and there are consequences. The brothers sell Yosef into slavery. There are consequences. Everything, every Yehuda is together with Tamar. This, everything is clear, and we see people's mistakes or people's errors, and then we see the results. Parshishmois, everything changes. The Jews are exiled. Why? Before the flood, the Torah makes sure to tell you that Malah Aretz Hamas. The whole world was filled with corruption. So I would expect the opening of Parsha Shmois to say, the Jews proliferated, they became a big nation, but then, who knows, they became corrupt, they became narcissistic, there was theft, there was immorality, there was promiscuity. No, nothing. Sounds like a wonderful people, and they are a wonderful people, they were a wonderful people, they will be a wonderful people. Out of the blue, Pari comes and says, this is not good, we have to be sly with these people, they are going to take over our land, they're going to usurp our country, Havan is chak malay, and therefore he begins oppressing the people. And the student of Torah is saying, Lama, Makara, what happened? Why? The first time in Torah we see a terrible, terrible predicament, a terrible, terrible situation without apparent justification. What happened? And the truth is, the Alter Rebbe says, it's clear that this is unique because God told the Tavram hundreds of years before. They weren't even around and he said they're going to be oppressed. They couldn't have sinned when he spoke Tavram of you, no Jews yet. <laughs> Since before Yitzchak was born, there was not even one Jew. It was Avram and Sarah, that's it. Great question. Paltani is going to get back to this, but now he goes on his journey, where he takes us into the inner layers of reality. To understand all of this, let's quote the Pasuk in Parshas Bereshis. After the creation of the world, it says, Eile tell us Hashemayim varitz biborum, biyoyim asayis Hashem alakim eretz v'shemayim. The day that Hashem Elohim formed, made heaven and earth. In other words, the creation of heaven and earth necessitated the partnership, the convergence of the name Yudke Vavke and the name of Elohim. And this is significant because throughout the story of creation, only the name Elohim is mentioned. We don't have any other name mentioned. Only the name Elikim. At the end of creation, when it's summarized, there's a new name. Ela told us, Havaya Elikim. Throughout creation, it says, Vayomer Elikim, Vayomer Elikim, Yimoyres, Vayomer Elikim, Nasadam. Only Elikim. At the end, it says, Ela told us, Hashemayim Vayomer, Biyom Asois, Hashem Elikim, Yutkevavke Elikim. Says the Balatanya, the two names had to come together. Shutfus. There's a partnership of the two names. 
to understand the meaning of these names, we all know Hashem is called by different names throughout the Tanakh. The two famous names is Yudke Vavke and Elikim. Vayidaber Hashem al Moshe Leimer is Yudke Vavke. Vayidaber Yudke Vavke. We don't say it Yudke Vavke. We say always Aleph Dalad Nun Yud, which we're learning about in the Maimer Bosi Legani. But these are the two names, and it's the name of Elikim. What is the difference between them? Obviously, there are different names to denote different manifestations or different aspects or different reflections of energy, or different experiences of the divine. Because Hashem is indivisible, Hashem is one. So why are there different names? You should have one name, or you should be nameless. But obviously the names represent different aspects, at least from our perception. So he says, Hine, the first thing we have to remember is Aleikim Lashen Rab. Aleikim is the only name of Hashem that's written in the plural. Rashi points this out in Chumash. Eleikim, there's Eleika, but there's Eleikim. In fact, Eleikim is often the, is a name that's not used for God, it's used for judges. In Parshish Mishpatim it says, Eleikim loy sekalel. Eleikim, and it says, rulers, you should not curse the rulers, you should not c- c- curse the judges, the leaders. Eleikim, in the plural, not Eleika. So that's fascinating. Even in Chumash, Yaakov Inu says to Yosef before his death, he says, Eleikim, the word alekim, when it's used, is plural. The Pasuk says, It doesn't even say Kaddish. We say in Davening, It comes to alekim, the Pasuk uses the word alekim kedoshim. In the singular, it would have been Alekim Kadoshu. But here's Alekim Kadoshim, who, and of course, Kadoshim is the plural of Kadosh, which would be the singular of Kadosh. This is a Pasuk in Yahushua, the book of Joshua, chapter 24, verse 19. I don't know Tanakh Baal Peh, it's just in the back. There's Myra Mekaymas, Ha'aris Vitsiyunim, so over there there's the references for all the, the, the verses, and then Maimori Chazal. That Balatatni quotes. Vahavayahu echad. Yutke vavke is oneness. So alekim is in the plural. Yutke vavke is one. Vahainyin. This gives us a vista to begin to understand the difference. Vahainyin, the hinek siv, the pasuk says, and this pasuk everybody knows, we don't have to look in the back. God el hashem amuhulal miyayid filigdulasi in cheker. We say this in Ashrei every single morning, a few times a day. We say it before Mincha, we say it by Pesukah de Zimra, we say it before Valetzia and after Shemin Ezra. Tehillim 145, Psalms 145. God Hashem, Hashem is great. He's very extolled. And His greatness, to His greatness there's no inquiry. Meaning there's no way to research and grasp the truth of His greatness. That's what the Pasuk says in Tehillim. I looked in the back, he actually made a mistake. He says Tehillim 84, 48, it has to be Tehillim 145. But I'll tell you why he made the mistake. Because of the next line. And Dr. Rebbe says, Which is another Pasuk in Tehillim. It says in Tehillim Memches, we say this on Monday, today, Shir Shalyayim, if you dive in already, Gadol Hashem umuhulal ma'oid bi'ira lekeno. Remember? That's Tehillim 48. So the Alter Rebbe is combining two verses. There's Ashrei, Gadol Hashem umuhulal ma'oid bi'ira lekeno. But earlier in Tehillim 48, Gadol Hashem umuhulal ma'oid bi'ira lekeno. God is great in the city of our God. Meaning in his city, in the city of Elekeno, that's where Hashem is great. Again, two names. Gadol Hashem so Chazal say, The Zoya says, When is Hashem Gadol? When He's in the city of our God. On a literal level, you might say, when He's in the city where He's appreciated, then He's a Gadol. You know, sometimes a great, a great person can go to a city they don't appreciate Him, He's not a Gadol. What does this really mean? When is Hashem Gadol when he's in the city of God? What does it mean when he's in the first? What does it mean he's in the city of God? He's in every city, and then he becomes a Gadol. What, what's the meaning of this? 
Explains the Balatanya, Kimiyos, Ligdulasi is Barachain Cheker. Because Ligdulasi and Cheker, because there's no way of researching or investigating his greatness. And as the Zayar puts it, no thought can grasp him. What does it mean, no thought can grasp him? Our thoughts grasp reality, but there's no thought in the world that can grasp, that could wrap its brain around Hashem. The world of machshava, the world of thoughts, even the highest and most subtle and spiritual thoughts, cannot grasp him. We can't even use the term greatness. We can't even say gadol. To say on something gadol, there has to be some appreciation. You say this man is a gadol. There's greatness. You have to be able to appreciate it. You can't say on Hashem gadola. Why? I have no appreciation of what it is. I have my thought cannot begin to grasp what he is, what he's not. The only way we could use the word gedula is when there is a ray. A ray that extends from Hashem's reality. What do we mean by a ray? I cannot look at the sun itself, but I can appreciate the ray of the sun. The rays of the sun come and illuminate my home and bring light and warmth to our planet. If the sun itself would come into your home, then you would become uh, toast. We can't have access to the direct access to the sun itself. We can't even get close to the sun. We can't send people to go land on the sun like we sent Armstrong to the moon in 1969. But the ziv, the a ray of the sun, a ray that extends from the solar core to our planet, this give, provides us with warmth, it provides us with light, with heat, and all of the other tremendous benefits that we get from the sun's energy and the sun's heat. So that's called a zivahara. This is a metaphor. When we have a ray of Hashem, a ray of Hashem means that there's a certain limited aspect that we can experience of the divine, infinite, unfathomable reality here we could say this is great. What we call great is never the reality. It's a ray of the reality that we can experience. That's what he's saying. I hope you understand these words because they're profound. Don't just read the words. Every word here is very profound. When a ray and a glimmer, ha'ara is like a glimmer, a radiance, extends from what's called his malchus, and what, it was, what does he mean by his malchus? It extends from his desire to be in a relationship, to be a god, to be a melech, to be a leader, to be connected to us. The Bible says, Again, in Ashrei, your malchus is the malchus of all the worlds, meaning, literally means your kingship doesn't extend only to New York or to Israel or to Indonesia. Your kingship extends malchus. You say, this king, you know, this Napoleon, or this Tsar, or this king, Alexander, you know, reigned much of the planet, or a huge part of the planet. Malchuscha, your Malchus is Malchus kol It's the Malchus that pervades all the worlds. But the Rebbe says there's something deeper here. We learned this in other Maimarim as well. Malchuscha, Malchus kol That the energy, the Malchus of all the worlds, comes from your Malchus, from your quality of Malchus. This is what ultimately invigorates all the worlds. And this extension of the divine energy could be compared to a ray. A mere ray, a mere glimmer of light, like one ray of the sun that extends into my home. In Kabbalistic and Hasidic literature, this is called the light of the Ein Saif. What does it mean, the light of the Ein Saif? Call it the Ein Saif, the infinite one. No, it's the light of the Ein Saif. Just like you have the solar core. And then you have a ray of the solar core. And that ray I can appreciate, I can study, I can look at, I can enjoy every morning. If I look at the sun midday, the sun is shining, it's blinding. It can actually be harmful for the eyes. To get close to the sun, you can't get too close to the sun. If our planet was too close to the sun, we couldn't survive, just like if we were too far from the sun. But the ray of the sun I can deal with. (laughs) Why? Because it's only a ray. It's limited, it's shrinked. So when we speak about Hashem himself, he says no thought can grasp it. 
I can't even begin to understand the Gedula. However, the Oren Seif, the Oren Seif is, there is an aspect, there is a ray of divine energy that is channeled and restricted and harnessed in a way that I could begin to experience it and appreciate it. Even if only by this fact that it becomes the source of my existence. It's like the battery of existence. I can appreciate God as the battery of existence. Just like you appreciate the battery of anything. Just like you appreciate the electricity that infuses, so to speak, life and vitality in whatever object is alive. I'm using the word alive, obviously, metaphorically. Through the electricity. I can appreciate God as the electricity of existence, as the DNA of existence, as the engine behind existence, as the fuel, the oxygen, the soul, the vivifying force that creates and animates existence. V'ziv ha-shechina, it's called the radiance of the shechina. In Kabbalah it's called Oyrein Saif, and in Gemara it's called Ziv ha-shechina. But you see the similarity. Ziv is the radiance and Oyr is the light. The metaphor for this is the light, the rays of the sun that extend from the sun. It's not the sun itself. This, the Pasuk says in Tehillim, chapter 84. David HaMelech says, Hashem Elohim is a sun and a shield. And here the Alter Rebbe says, let's understand the depth of the Pasuk. Literally, people explain what does the verse mean. God is a sun and a shield. He gives us light and he gives us protection. But why does he use two names? Shemesh umagein Hashem alekim. Stabalatanya says this Pasuk really has a great depth. Hashem and alekim are actually referring to the two words Shemesh and Magin. Just as the light that comes from the sun to illuminate the planet is only a ray, and it has no comparative value and significance relative to the essence of the sun. You can't even compare it. It's not of the same essence and caliber. Even though it comes from the sun itself, nobody's going to say that a ray of light that comes from the sun captures the essence of the sun. It doesn't have, you can't know the properties, the size, the intensity, the heat, the light, the electricity, and any other dimension and dynamic of the sun from studying the ray. The ray comes from the sun, but in no way are you going to say that the ray captures and embodies what the sun is. The ray, I can appreciate I can look at, as I said, I can enjoy. So it comes from the sun. It's certainly an aspect of the sun, but it doesn't capture the sun. That's what we mean when we say Ziv Hashchina or Oren Saif. The same is true. The whole life force that extends to create and animate and secure and continuously is responsible for the existence of all the worlds, from the highest universes to the lowest, from the highest levels to the lowest levels, he says it's all called Ziv HaShchina, the ray of the Shechina. She'ein toifsim makay. It does not occupy space relative to the sun. V'kula kamei k'loi And everything in his presence doesn't have a separate, doesn't have, uh, doesn't occupy distinguished and separate chashivus and significance, because it's a ziv hashchina. So when we speak about Hashem as a gadol, what are we referring to? There's no thought that can grasp Hashem. All of divinity that defines all of existence, what is it? It's the oir of Ein Saif. It's the way, so to speak, like the ray of the sun that extends and animates and creates all of the world. It comes from Hashem, it's all Hashem. But that which we can speak of, that which we can somewhat experience, that which we can even articulate on some level, is only the ray of the sun. V'hinei the Pasuk says, Marabu ma'asecha, uksiv ma'gadlu ma'asecha. 
There's two psukim in Tehillim. We say this both in the davening. Every morning we say, That's from Tehillim 104, right? We also say, Friday night, Shabbos day. What do we say over there also in Tehillim? Marabu means how abundant Magadlu is how great. How many and how great. Marabu Masach, what's the difference? Marabu Masach, Marabu Masacha refers to the lowest worlds and all of the things and creatures that exist and all things, matter that exists in our world. Because what defines them and what startles us is the diversity of it. The Marabu. So many, and so many different types. The diversity, the biodiversity that we see within organisms, and the diversity in general that we see on our planet and in our cosmos, especially on our planet, something unique. <clears throat> he says there's so much division, myriads and myriads and myriads of different types of creatures, of different shapes and different colors and different type of chemistry even though they're all using the same dictionary. They're using the same dictionary. They're all using living organisms, are using the same DNA dictionary, so to speak. But the diversity is incredible. And he says, and in different forms. If you talk about doimim, inorganic matter. Incredible. If you talk about tzimeach, the world of botany, the diversity in the world of botany, vegetation. If you talk about chai, see, datzach is doimim tzimeach, chai is the animal kingdom. Living organisms, but not just the world of botany and vegetation, which is also alive, but the world of animals, whether it's fish and birds and mammals, reptiles, insects. All animals, all living organisms. Shekame mini daimim. There's so many different types of daimim. Daimim means lifeless, inorganic matter. Shekame mini tzemeach, the diversity in the world of vegetation. Vechol minu min yeshletam b'fnei We are also startled by the fact that every species has its own flavor. Talk about it, the world of vegetation. And he gives an example. Tapuchim, egoizim, shkedim. There's the flavor, the taste of the apple. There's the taste of the walnut. There's the taste of the almond nut. I'm just giving a few, and he says, but so many more. In the world of vegetation, every fruit, every tree, every bush, every shrub, every vegetable. Whatever is edible, whatever is inedible, it has its own flavor, its own unique chemistry, its own unique composition, its own unique taste. And you have to marvel because you're planting a seed, you have soil, you have ear, oxygen, you have water, and you have sunlight. And yet it produces things with so many different flavors. There's the flavor of the peach, the flavor of the orange, flavor of the apple, flavor of the plum, the flavor of the nut flavor of the grape, the flavor of the kiwi, the flavor of the papaya, the flavor of the sabra, the flavor of the mango. Do you appreciate it? We spoke about edible fruits, but it's true about all the types of grasses, which many of us are not even aware of. Every, every species, every type of grass has its own tam its own flavor, its own unique properties that serve a particular function and purpose in the diversity of existence. Animals are often very aware of the different types of asav, the different types of grass. And we know every grass has its own unique time, its own unique dimension, its own unique personality, its own unique character. This is the marabu masach. Dovod HaMelech is, is startled, he's marveling at the diversity of creation. He doesn't even get into people here. He doesn't even get into animals. He's stuck to the world of Daimim and the world of Tzemeach because use your imagination and research and learn more. But now he says, go, let's go further. 
Don't think that the taste of apples or the taste of walnuts or the taste of almonds is just random. Yeah, it's based on, I mean, listen, this is one of the, you know, when you think about this, it's really startling because, you know, for those who want to argue that everything is random, it just happened, you know, by coincidence, by mistake, it is mind-boggling, you know? You pick up that peach and you eat it. And it happens to be that that particular seed, when it comes in contact with the earth, somehow everybody figured out how to produce this peach, which, by the way, works wonderfully for your own system. <laughs> that synchronization, all of nature works together by mistake. And that's just one example of one fruit. And the way it's packaged, you know, that apple, that orange, that perfect symmetry, there's sweetness and there's tartiness. There's not too much liquid. If there be too much liquid, it would decompose. But there is liquid to keep it alive and to keep it fresh. The, f- the fruits come with a packaging, with a, sh- with, a, with, a, with a layer, with a protective shield, with a peel in order to make sure that it's protected. When it becomes ripe, it changes colors. Why? So that it should become noticeable. So that I know that it's time to pluck it. The grip on the tree loosens so that it's easier to, uh, to remove. It also tells me that now it's healthy to eat me. I'm not premature. I'm not unripe. It's not going to bother you. So therefore, I'm changing my colors. Also, the colors are very festive colors. In other words, they, they, they are here to attract you. Yeah. <laughs> all, all, all of this is happening, and every fruit has its own uniqueness, its own unique properties, its own unique nutritious values. And it's not just fruits. We know a couple of fruits. Every grass, he says, every plant, every shrub, every bush. I read, I once, I once somebody sent me a paper, a documentary. It was a, it was a short story. It was incredible. Years ago, I, I would want to look it up again. There was some Arab living in Israel. And he had cancer. He had cancer. And he remembered that he had a sheep some years earlier who became very emaciated and sick. The sheep had cancer, and then the sheep healed. And he realized that the sheep kept on going to one particular type of bush to eat. And it happened to be that that bush had tremendous properties to be able to heal this sheep, and this person was helped by it. Now, I don't know the science behind it and how much research was done with it. I'm not here to, uh, to authenticate any story that I'm not intimately familiar with. My point is, it was incredible how the sheep had this wisdom. Maybe if some of you saw the story, you could uh, send me a link or post a link on the, in the comments. A really incredible story. It, just, it showed you the wisdom in creation and how the sheep picked it up. So the Alter Rebbe says, this is all marabu masachasha. But he says it goes further. The flavor, the taste of every single fruit, every single vegetable, every single tree, every single grass comes from what's called the mazal hashefeilov. It's really spiritual. It translates into a physical flavor. Yes, the apple has a specific taste and the plum has a specific taste and the walnut has a specific taste. But those properties begin with the spiritual flavor. The physical flavor comes from the spiritual flavor. And this is the mazel ruchni hashefeyalov. The chazal say, Ein kol chuli. He expects you to know the end of the quote. The medrash says, There is no blade of grass below. That doesn't have a mazel that strikes it and says, Grow, grow. So what does this mean? That there's an invisible whip that whips every single blade of grass, maybe. But Alter Rebbe say, a mazel, when you say it has mazel, mazel doesn't mean it has luck. Mazel means it has a spiritual energy. The physical taste comes from a spiritual taste. Every physical fruit, every physical vegetable, every physical legume, every physical type of grain, everything. It has a spiritual mazel, which means a spiritual energy that represents a certain type of spiritual flavor. And that's the mazel that ultimately evolves and devolves into the physical incarnation of this particular 
a fruit, a vegetable, a legume, a seed. V'cholzeh, and all this, In other words, there is a system of spiritual devolution. Every physical phenomenon here doesn't begin with the physical. It begins with a spiritual energy that evolves until it assumes a physical incarnation, just like we know in a person. My physical tears are a result of my inner emotion, which is not physically tangible. And that emotion yet comes from a yet a deeper emotion and a deeper emotion, a deeper emotion, until, until it evolves into physical tears. The same is true if I'm physically dancing and jumping out of joy. It doesn't just begin with the dancing and jumping. There is an inner dynamic that is producing the outer experience. The processes that we see in the bio, excuse me, the processes that we see, whether it's in our own biology, in our own living organ, or other living organisms, we see the physical processes, and even those we don't see completely. Every year and every month we learn more and more about the processes. But that process, that process doesn't begin only on a physical level. There is a spiritual energy that translates into the physical dynamic. And that's why the deeper we go into science and physics, the more we begin to cross the border from the physical to the metaphysical, from the visible to the invisible, from the concrete to the spiritual, from the material to the transcendental, from matter to consciousness. Why? Because of this mind, because of what he says in this mind. Why the more the more we go into science and physics, the more do we hit the border of material and we begin crossing to the border of immaterial, of, of spiritual, of transcendental. When I look at something, it seems like matter. When I use a microscope, suddenly I see a whole invisible world. And the deeper I can go into that world, the more complex, the more paradoxical, the more nonsensical, the more transcendental that world becomes. Because essentially the whole physical process is really a result of a spiritual process which I don't pick up with my eyes. I have to use a different, different instruments to pick them up. Just like I can't see atoms with my eyes. I can't see molecules with my eyes. <coughs> I also can't see photosynthesis, photosynthesis with my eyes. I could see the results, but not the process. <laughs> All this comes from the psilus. The psilus is the refuse of the higher worlds. <laughs> the we say in Nishmas. V'chol krava kacha. At the end of Nishmas, you remember? David says, My soul blesses God. Again, Tehillim 104. What's Vachol Kravai? Kravai, you know what Kravai are? Kishkes. Kerev means my intestines. All my intestines sing God's holy name, praise God's holy name. Vachol Kravai. What an interesting term, Kravai, my intestines. He means my innards, my innards, praise God. Alter Rebbe says there's something much deeper here. Hafla v'fela. Sheyashprinis kravayim elyoinim. There are divine intestines. Shemivadidim hapsoilis lashpia loilam hazagash. What do our intestines do? You're familiar with uh, your GI? <laughs> the higher intestines, the lower intestines. You're familiar with the GI system? What do your kravayim do? This is the digestive system. If you ever saw an x-ray, if you ever studied this, it's unbelievable how the body takes the food and it travels through the intestine and the intestines pick up what is toiv, what is psilus, what goes into the body because it has nutritious value, what is the refuse that has to be evacuated from the body. And even that which can be absorbed into the body, what aspect of the body can it be absorbed into? Are we sending it into the bloodstream? Or this is not something to go into the bloodstream. Depends what you ate for breakfast. Did you eat green beans? Or did you, did you eat rugelach? <laughs> the intestines have to work much harder with certain foods than they work with other foods. So the Balatanya says, where do intestines begin? They don't begin here. They begin up there. There's something called They have to do boire. They have to select and separate the good from the bad. To define what's going down and becoming part of physical matter. And what's not. What's staying up and what's going to the next level. Which food is being passed down to the next level. That's why he says, 
all of this that we experience here is from the psalus of the Olam Asalyanim, or what's the divine, the whole, the spiritual intestines dismissed and said this is going down to the lower world. Or Kamaim Razal, Chazal say, not to smile, it's not to Yemen, but a Shemai. Hashem extended his left hand and created earth. He extended his right hand and he created heaven. Meaning, Sha'aritz Mekabalas Mabchina smile. Because what's it mean? From the, the left created the earth and the right created heaven. The le- this is like the intestines which say this is going to earth and this is going to heaven. This is the marabu, the abundance, the diversity. But then there's something else. There's magadlu masacha. Magadlu masacha. This is what Alter Rebbe is going to discuss in the continuation of the Maimir. We'll take a few questions. The way I understand about the light that you explained, we often have a teacher, and the teacher's totality is way beyond what the recipient can observe, absorb. So there will be merely a ray of the totality. The teacher can't give all his knowledge to the novice. The parent cannot give all their love to the child. The recipient cannot handle more of the flow than his vessels. Electricity is stepped down and down, and reduced until it's usable, so it won't overwhelm the vessel. If you have too of a great flow of electricity, it will burn up the vessel. Water is restricted again and again until a trickle comes out of the faucet, because if the whole water, if the water comes out with too much pressure and intensity, there'll be a flood. So the full power of the sun, both the light and the heat, is restricted by an exact distance, so that we should be able to retain it. And this is all a metaphor. For the Oyr Ein Saif and the Ziv Hashchina. Yes, beautiful, beautiful metaphors. You quoted the statement of our sages that no blade of grass grows without a mazel striking it and saying grow. What is striking the mazel and telling it to strike the blade of grass? That's a beautiful question. And the answer is that mazel has a mazel above it. Because that mazel relative to the mazel above it is like the blade of grass relative to the mazel above it. And that that mazel, and that's the process of spiritual devolution from the spiritual to the physical. But the spiritual itself evolves from a higher state of pristine spirituality and yet a deeper and a deeper and a deeper and a deeper until it comes down all the way. That's why we speak about various worlds and various states of consciousness and various spheres and various characteristics. This is the mazel that evolves from the previous mazel. Yeah, very interesting question. Next question. You spoke about Moshe Rabbeinu looking at Sefer Bereshis and being astonished about the reasons for the Egyptian exile. But I don't understand. I always thought that Hashem dictated the Torah and he wrote it down like a stenographer. Did Hashem dictate Bereshis even before Moshe led the Jews out of Mitzrayim? Yeah, so... The Medrash Rabbah says this, that Moshe Rabbeinu looked at Sefer Bereshis. So my hunch would be that the Medrash doesn't necessarily mean that he looked at the text of Sefer Bereshis. The way I would understand it is that he looked into the themes of Sefer Bereshis. He looked into the concepts, into the narrative of Sefer Bereshis, and that's when he wondered about the contrast between Bereshis and Shmois. What's the application of what we learned today to life? Well, we do have to continue the Maimir to be able to see the full picture. But I think what we learned today was telling us how it's so important to be able to appreciate Marabu Masecha Hashem. When you, uh, when you lift up a banana or you lift up an apple or sprout or kale or spinach and you make a bracha before you eat it, don't do it randomly. Don't just do it robotically. Do it with, with mindfulness, with with connection, with passion, with gusto, with dedication. When, when you look at outside your window and you see the bird chirping or the deer and the gazelle roaming or the groundhog digging or the squirrel searching or lahavdil, the human walking, marvel at the miracle of creation. I'm looking out of the window and I see our uh, Muncie bedecked in a beautiful white snow. This is all part of the Marabu Masach Hashem. And the more you look at it, and the more you tune into it, the more you see the flow of godliness. Marabu Masach Hashem. The flow of godliness that actually all comes from the ray that allows us 
to experience the divine because the divine compresses itself and reforms itself, if I could say so. That's an interesting word. I don't know if it's appropriate. It reforms itself into becoming a source of existence, into becoming the life force of existence. And then every single physical existence is always a result of something deeper. That's, that's something else that's very powerful. Even the flavor of the fruit that you're eating, that flavor is not a physical flavor. It's a physical flavor that comes from a unique spiritual flavor, which comes yet from a deeper spiritual flavor. And this is what it means to live with consciousness, to live consciously and to live in a way that you're tuned in to the consciousness of existence. But even when you capture the consciousness of existence, we're touching the air, we're touching an aspect of the light, an array of the sun core. Because how many rays does the sun have? How many? <laughs> the sun has infinite rays of light. It's not like the sun has two rays of light. So even when I, when I experience the ray, I'm not experiencing all the rays. I'm experiencing a ray or rays of the sun, but even the rays are infinite. That's the marabu masachasha. So I think that's some of the things that we could learn from what we learned to, we can apply what we learned today. Let's see if there's more questions. Okay, Chavre, I'm going to wish you a beautiful day and a wonderful day. I do want to suggest, yesterday morning, Sunday morning, we had a shear here in my house in the Maimer Basi Lagani 5721. The Rebbe's Maimer Basi in 1961. We discussed three streams of Kabbalah. The Ramak and the Arizal, the Balshemtev and the Balatanya. Very, very fundamental ideas. I would... Uh, this is a, 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 a commercial. I would suggest that to whoever can, you could put it on double speed if you need to, but it's worthwhile to hear and learn and apply because uh, the material there is extremely fundamental and transformative. We're going to continue with Bezer Hashem next Sunday morning. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.